0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm delighted to share Chief Patient Advocate and Officer Fireside Chat from the 2019 Patients as Partners U.S. Conference on the topic of driving culture change from the top down. This session is moderated by Ken Getz, Director and Associate Professor of Tufts CSDD and Founder and Board Chair of Syscript. Ken is joined by Dr. Julie Gerberding, Chief Patient Officer for Merck and Jane Gershkowitz, Chief Patient Advocate for Amicus Therapeutics. I hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: We now have a a privilege and an opportunity to hear from senior executives in pharmaceutical companies to learn about patient engagement and how they're thinking about it within their own respective organizations. Dr. Julia Gerberding, uh, Executive Vice President and Chief Patient Officer at Merck, and Jane Nagerskowitz at uh, Amicus Therapeuticus, chief uh, patient officer there. And each has a uh, unique experience uh, and a unique vantage point within their organizations to really talk about how they're affecting change, how they're supporting uh, and uh, stimulating their organization's support of patient engagement initiatives. So to kick us off, I really wanted to ask uh, each of you to give us a feeling for what it's like in your organization today, uh, your thoughts on how you're approaching uh, uh, patient-centric initiatives and being a more patient-centric organization or maintaining your uh, patient-centric approach and uh, talk about uh, some of the things that you're trying to do within the organization to affect change. And Jane, maybe we'll start with you.
2: Sure. Thank you, Ken, and, and thanks everybody for being here. This is. As someone had just said recently, it's amazing to see how this meeting has grown, so it's very exciting. Uh, At Amicus, we are right now working at maintaining our patient dedication. I say that because it has been part of the fabric of the company since its outset, our CEO. Uh, Two of his three children live with a very rare disease. So he is not only a CEO, but he is a patient and parent advocate himself. So for every company that John has been in, patient advocacy has been a prime function. As we have been fortunate to grow, uh, when I started we were about 35 people. We're now 540 and growing quickly around the world. We're bringing in people from so many different companies and different cultures and different experiences, many of whom never had the opportunity to engage with patients or families, whereas we've been doing that all along. So it's having uh, people understand who we are, and frankly, I do think it's our patient dedication that is one of our attracting forces. Uh, but to have people feel comfortable and understand that it's really okay to be involved directly with patients and families as well as with their advocacy organizations and the leaders of those organizations and what we do is something that many other companies probably are doing now but we've been doing it from the earliest days we bring families patients organization leadership in for the infamous lunch and learn where we're able to have the entire company there, and there are certain topics that are discussed, certain experiences, perhaps their journeys, uh, things that help us to understand the disease as much as anyone can. And I always say, you know, what Rob said with the boots, unless you have and live with the disease yourself, there's no way you're going to fully understand it. Besides that, we have roundtables where we're bringing together people from across the different functions at the company that want particular insights. It could be regulatory, and, and they want to have discussion around protocol development. It could be uh, you know, endpoints and how they're interacting with the FDA and what's important to the families. Same thing with clinical operations around protocol development, assessments, what's realistic, again, meaningful endpoints, et cetera. Uh, But it also goes across to manufacturing and CMC, where we have roundtables around packaging. And they're not necessarily focus groups, although we do those as well. But they're part of what some people are understanding is the the development of our programs in general. And, And with that, I'll just end with our patient advisory board program. Uh, which is a little bit different, I think, than the way many other companies have advisory boards. Uh, it's equal to our medical advisory boards. And in the case of the patient uh, ones, the PABs, as we call them, people make a two-year commitment. It's a nominating um, application process. There's interviews. There's vetting. And we put together a group that really represents disease experience, uh, diversity in terms of geography, age, et cetera, and those people make a two-year commitment so that they're really understanding where we're at and where we're going, and they're able to advise us along the way. And then there's another initiative, but we can talk about that later. Great.
3: So good morning, and thank you so much for including the patient officers in the program. Um, We're learning as we go, so it's really fun to be here and and listen to um, the perspectives that have already been shared. Merck is a company that, um, from its inception, um, has uh, in its motto, had a statement about putting patients first, so it's been part of the DNA of the company for a long time, but it's very difficult sometimes to take that big sort of purpose and translate it into how we prioritize our work and our thinking on a day-to-day basis. So since my predecessor, Dr. Mike Rosenblatt, really committed Merck to being a leader in this area, we've been on our own journey, a little bit like the journey we just saw on the map. And we don't have it all figured out, so and don't have solutions to um, put out or provide an evidence base for. But just like you've just heard, um, there are many domains of working hard on putting patients at center. And we've been focusing on four really big buckets of work. One is on the thing that everybody wants, which is faster access to affordable, better medicines that provide cures or at least game changers in medicine. And that has to be the overarching focus and alignment that I think we all share. The second bucket has to do with really the patient-focused drug development, the insights, the commitment to really starting first with the patient and having that inform the target product profile and then the protocol and then the patient-reported outcomes and the label and so on and so forth all the way through the packaging. So the end-to-end processes that bring the patients in in a much more targeted and direct way through similar mechanisms, lunch and learn, grand rounds, patient input forums, advisory groups, et cetera, et cetera. The third bucket has to do with how the patient experiences us. Um, And Mary's sitting here in front of me, and Mary can tell you one of our most important drugs, um, the one that we have 900 clinical trials going on, Keytruda, If you went into our website and were looking for a Keytruda trial and you misspelled Keytruda, you would get zero responses. So we are fixing things like that, but it just tells you that the most simple step can sometimes be a barrier for patients getting what they need from, from all of us. The, the last area that we are really working on is is understanding how to align with support work with advocacy groups and other alliances that really help amplify this perspective outside the corporate environment and help us build stronger networks and stakeholders, really on a global basis now, we have this work going on all over the world, because together we can accomplish something important, whereas any individual company or any individual patient caregiver organization really has a a challenge. I'll just say, um, if I'm looking a little tired and bedraggled, it's because I spent the weekend at a funeral in a tiny town in Michigan where one of my close friends had a journey that looked something like the one you just saw. And when I listened to what she endured for the last eight years of her um, thrival, actually, but nevertheless um, ultimate um, death from a, a, a rare form of ovarian cancer, Um, we have our work cut out for us. There is so much more we need to do to create a humanitarian, comprehensive, holistic, integrated support system that not just delivers fantastic medicines but also is conscious of the whole patient and the whole family and community in which that patient lives and works. So thank you.
1: Great. Can both of you talk about... from where you sit. In your case, Jane, you've really been with the organization really close to the beginning, and Julie, in your case, actually coming into a, a function or a group that had already started. Can you talk about how the, the patient engagement within the organization is evolving and, and how it's changed since uh, where it was a few years ago?
2: Sure. Well, I'll, I'll start, if I may, because I think that Having started with a company that was truly R&D and so few employees to where we are now, having commercial product, um, a robust pipeline, et cetera, there is a difference. I mean, I'm the chief patient advocate. We have a patient advocacy department of 11 now around the world, and I think that's a pretty robust number. Uh, And for us, it's not about any one particular product or any one particular study, although we certainly support all of the work that goes into that, and we infuse the patient perspective into all of those different functions. But first and foremost, it's about advocating for people living with disease. they are their internal advocate. We also work externally. Uh, to gather the information and to learn what the unmet needs are not only medically but educationally and I think that came up in the last panel And, and to your point as well Julie about really having a holistic view about what is it that people need to live the best they can with their disease and to have the information they need to make the best decisions the best decision may or may not be one of our clinical trials or one of our approved medicines, but at least they've been given the information and they've been given it in a uh, product agnostic way. So in terms of informed consent, for example, that's something that we've been working on as well as the drug development process in terms of general education. And we work with the patient advocacy organizations um, with that type of information as well as disease awareness information to get the word out to people. And it's aside from any particular study, it's to understand the process. We certainly we work with Ciscrip and, and utilize some of their fine resources as well. So we're trying to help people in the rare disease community, regardless of the disease, even if it's one we're not working on, to have that information for themselves, for the caregivers, for the families, but also for the physicians and their teams to use these materials that are written in lay language that help them start conversations that they may not be having?
3: No, um, it's actually really hard to do this um, because most of us work in, I would probably say all of us work in organizations that are very mission-driven, people have a very strong sense of purpose, um, and it's really hard to believe that we're not doing everything right. (laughs) So um, when you come into a situation where you actually have a little bit better um, external awareness or you have data that shows exactly how do the patients think you're doing, and you have to inform the people inside the company that maybe we have opportunities for improvement. It's a struggle, um, and I, I, I that's why I say it's a journey. We can't just go in and change things. But one of the reasons it's hard is is very legitimate, and that is that when you're motivated to try to move drugs through the pipeline as safely and as quickly and as expeditiously as possible. You don't want anything to create regulatory uncertainty, and you don't want anything that's going to slow down or confuse that process. And sometimes introducing more voices, more perspective, more outcomes, more protocol changes can actually paradoxically slow things down or create uncertainty. And scientists and and clinical development leaders really want to get the straightest line from where we are to where... Um, the FDA needs us to be to get a drug approved and available to people. So there's a resistance to things that could potentially be perceived as clouding the picture. Now, of course, we all know that there is also an upside to bringing the patient's voice, the caretaker's voice, the clinician's voice, and a lot of other voices into the process. But that has to be something learned, and we have to be um, honest about the challenge that it brings. One of the things that Jan has done Jan at, at, at Merck is to create a Merck council. So we actually have a very cross-divisional um, council that meets basically once a month. Um, it has evolved the one Merck strategy for how we want to prioritize our work in this area, um, including voices from you know, clinical development, manufacturing, commercial, et cetera, um, but also synthesizing those perspectives into a pretty simple platform for how we're going to prioritize what we can get done this year and then what can we get done next year. It's kind of a plan horizontally, execute vertically sort of approach, but at least it helps people understand what we're doing and why and gets the whole company to recognize that you know there really is value here. Uh, it's not uniformly popular, and so a lot of our work is done... Um, incrementally um, patient product leader by patient product leader or um, this patient champion by that patient champion or this advocacy group by that advocacy group and I think probably like you have mentioned and we heard earlier one of the most vital and powerful ways of motivating an organization around this topic is to bring patients and their families and caretakers together with us. So we've really been doing that again on a global basis. Most of our leadership meetings across the world, um, most of our employee business briefings, we work very hard so that we include the reminder that at the end of the day, this is what we're here for and this is what really matters.
1: I want to just let the audience know that if you do have a question that uh, you're invited to come to the microphones to join our our discussion. I think uh, Julie, you brought up a very interesting point that i 've observed as well, which is um, over the last uh, eight or nine years, uh, patient engagement has shifted from very a very sort of unstructured more of an exuberant environment where we were really looking to gather as much insight into how to move forward, but it's really changed now. We're looking for more balance with a lot of the scientific uh, objectives that you described, and do you, do you see it that way, and do you see uh, uh, that as we move forward the tenor of patient engagement is probably going to be different than what we've seen in the past?
3: I I do think so, and I I think one of the areas where we're really pushing, and I know from my work with the National Academy of Medicine, um, we have a lot of institutional support for this, is in the area of building the science of patient engagement in decision-making around important health decisions. Um, We think of it as you know, an individual or family caretaker decision, but actually how we make medical decisions that are this complex, whether it's for a rare disease or a long-term disease or a life-threatening disease, these are really, really complex decisions that are influenced by culture, Um, by behavioral economics, um, by a lot of factors that remain undefined right now. So I think we would all be able to do our job better if we had better science and better investment in the science of uh, health decision-making and support for patients who are experiencing these kinds of challenges.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree, and I think it's also up to all of us as we work with different diseases and patient communities is in understanding what it is that they want. So one of the things that we've been doing through patient advocacy, and I'm sure others of you are doing similar work, are surveys, surveys of patients and physicians around unmet needs, but surveys that are IRB-approved, that you're going to have quality data. And that information not only informs the internal work, but it also is information that gets shared, that gets shared back to the patient and physician communities, that gets shared with the FDA, that it's part of of your submissions. And we have been doing this now fairly routinely. Uh, So that's one thing. Uh, And another thing relative to metrics I think, because sometimes not every organization has a strong understanding of patient engagement and patient advocacy. They may say it, but whether they do it or not may vary. So one of the things that we've been doing is with our patient advisory boards, again, is going back over, I think it's now eight or nine years, and looking at all of the recommendations that came out, and absolutely not every suggestion for protocol change can be made. Everything has to be weighed against that that, um, that path that you want to be the most expeditious and appropriate to get where you want to go. But we have looked at what are the things, what are the suggestions that we have taken, and what's the difference that it's made. And sometimes it actually ends up Helping things to go faster because you're not doing amendments and things like that. So we're looking at all of those decisions and the metrics of the implication. It's hard to say that in in my opinion, in in advocacy, there's actually a return of investment. It's more of a return on interactions or return on engagement. But I do believe that there are ways that we can monetize it. That's great.
1: Craig?
4: Craig Lub said at Pfizer. I'm going to ask this question while I'm looking at my friend Nicole, who introduced herself earlier as both a colleague at Pfizer and also a patient, and I often in different settings also self-identify more as a patient than as a colleague at a large biopharmaceutical company. Increasingly, we see that many of our companies are employing not only patients but caregivers in many of the indications, actually, that we're developing medicines in. Have you seen strategies for being able to engage and empower these colleagues within your own companies, in ways that allow them to self-identify where appropriate, but you can manage the concerns that your corporations may have around that.
3: Uh, a- absolutely, uh, you know. Obviously, people have to self-identify, and you know we're very sensitive about confidentiality and respect. But one of our most important. Um, motivating powerful spokespersons inside and outside of, of Merck as someone who's sort of in the middle of a very complicated journey and and right now is experiencing a very positive um, outlook, but you know his story is heart wrenching, but also something that we all think about every morning when we get up and come to work and he i 've seen this um, approach in several of our other uh, affiliates and subsidiaries around the world. It, there are some compliance and some medical legal issues that we've had to work out quietly internally and one of the other funny things that you don't think about but should you decide you want to bring a patient to come in and talk to your um, to your groups um, take a look at how you bring that patient in because we were using the same contract that we use when we bring medical providers in and we were asking them for their CV So we've had to kind of redo um, the corporate surround sound for how we can do this in in a patient-centric way.
4: We we had found that we had one leader, and this is what prompts me to ask the question, we had one leader um, who study teams were going to and asking to help find patients with NASH, and she was going out looking for patients with NASH. She had NASH. she wasn't being engaged in, and invited to share that experience because she happened to have NASH and work at our company. And so it would seem that even as we're thinking about ways to get input from patients, there should be some way to be able to harness the insights as well within our organization. Yeah, uh, see, Jane, you can really talk to that. Yeah, a couple of things,
2: um, Craig, to your, to your point. Uh, we have uh, several people who work at Amicus who live with a rare disease themselves or are a caregiver, and, of course, as you said, they have to self-identify. It seems that people are very comfortable self-identifying to people in patient advocacy, sometimes because they need some help and they're not sure themselves where to turn, but also they want us to know that they're living with something that can perhaps help us better understand what others experiences might be. And what we've done a couple of times, uh, we, not this year, we did it last year for Rare Disease Day, was we invited people and and we utilized our, our in, intranet um, as ways for people to do this. Um, if you live with or have a rare disease experience that you would like to share with the company, um, please let us know. And if you think that one in 10 Americans live with a rare disease and you've got, let's say, two hundred fifty three hundred people in one location you're going to have people living with rare disease plus they have a little bit of an attraction coming to a company where they feel that their situation may be well understood and we've had remarkable results of people sharing and where we now say that rare you know at amicus rare is common um, we also have people you know, people uh, living Um, with different rare diseases who come as employees, who come as interns, and we're trying to increase those opportunities. Um, In particular, we have one young man who lives with Duchenne muscular dystrophy who came to us as an intern a few years ago in my department because he really couldn't get a job anywhere. He had a very successful academic career. He was talented, but he needed more uh, real-world experience, and no one was willing to give it to him. And he came to us. He, he worked in my department for about a year and a half, and we recognized that his, his skills were really even better in IT, and he moved his, his internship to IT, and he's now a full-time employee. So I think, you know, for folks here, we have to do what we say we do, and, and caring about patients is also giving them the opportunities to be productive and to live that successful life. That's great.
1: Let's... You want to defer? Okay. Sure. <laughs>
0: Go ahead. Hi, Jessica Scott. I'm with Takeda. I wanted to share my perspective because I'm in a similar position at Decada, trying to encourage study teams to consider the patient uh, perspective. What I'm hearing from both of you is more um, engaging patients in the development space. and. Convincing the study teams that hearing from patients, getting more voices, um, won't slow down the um, asset development, I think, um, doesn't recognize the benefit of having the patient input very early in research as well, because the whole asset development can be. Um, can incorporate what is the unmet need from the patient perspective and really drive the science rather than vice versa and there is tremendous benefit from getting the, that insight really early on because the whole direction of travel, um, the mechan, the figu- figuring out which asset, which mechaniz- mechanism of action we'd like to pursue based on what the unmet need is, is hugely advantageous for both patients and for the pharmaceutical company because if we get a drug to market and it doesn't meet patients' needs, nobody wins. Yeah, I so didn't mean so to imply that you yeah. didn't <laughs> value that. That's yeah. actually the driver
3: in terms of defining the target product profile in the very yeah. early yeah. work, long before we get into the clinical development. I, I think yeah, it's same. newer
0: to think about it in research yeah. to having that, that insight. So I just wanted to remind everyone that yeah. this is really another way to approach um, how um, the insights that we gather from the patient perspective are not just about the protocol design and, and so forth. No,
2: absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we engage patient communities phase one, and even preclinically for that exact reason. So I did not want to imply that it would be
1: great. So we've got time for two more questions. Hi,
5: I'm uh, Ellen Sonnet from Cancer Care. Um, We have 30 master's level uh, oncology social workers who spend all day, every day, speaking to patients and caregivers. Um, We speak to about 1,500 of them a week. We also have um, significant research among these these patients and caregivers. Uh, what we find is that it's hard to share our resources with um, more than one or two departments within industry. We have so much to offer in terms of the you know the breadth and depth of uh, of our experience and access to patients, and yet uh, we are seen as sort of an advocacy group and we're relegated to the folks that process grants and do advocacy. And what a a shame, you know, what an unexploited resource. And it just so happens that one of our employees was diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer over 20 years ago has been on an I.O. and I think is the longest surviving um, I.O. lung cancer patient, maybe in the country, if not the world. And, I mean, how amazing would it be for your employees to hear from her? No, I, d- I just wanted to offer that yeah, as no, a way, I, you know, because I, I, I started my career in pharma. I worked at a cancer center for a long time, and now as an advocate, I can see the m- multiple ways this all fits together, and I think there's a lot of missed opportunities. Yeah,
2: no, I think that, Ellen, that's, that's great. And what we do is, with advocacy, is we're the point, we're sort of the triage point. So, you know, you're saying what you just said is sort of preaching to the converted to me, right? But what I would do as, as our, one of my team as a central point is then make sure that everybody across the different functions knows that this is available, and so that's why we're part of all of the core teams and the matrix teams and all, so that we're part of vetting vendors. We're part of looking at what do we need, how do we get it, and we're able to make suggestions just like anybody else on the team, and so I would urge you to work with those patient advocates to advocate for this kind of information within their companies.
3: I would also just like to mention that um, the Bio, the Biopharmaceutical Trade Association, um, has a patient advocacy committee that I co-chair with Paul Hastings. And when people have things that are hard to get to a pharmaceutical company directly, please contact Bio because they are really working hard to try to understand and fill in some of these gaps here. Um, We host a two-day summit every year to try to bring um, groups together like this, and you know I think this network is starting to get broader and broader, but um, because bio includes the CEOs of, of the vast majority of companies that are involved in these uh, very important spaces, we can be powerful voices, um, for example, in asking for federal support for this kind of research and for some of the other things that get lost in the cracks when people are looking at conventional um, health research. so I just wanted to make sure you knew there were additional, fairly powerful organizations that are also trying to help. Great.
1: Uh, I'll
3: be brief, but uh, I just wanted to uh, direct to Julie.
1: So um, you talked briefly about the patients and patient success being a big part of driving a lot of what you guys do at Merck, and um,
3: I just want to share with you that I started a Merck drug eight years ago that saved my life. And I'm here I I'm here today because of that. It is it was just recently FDA approved um, when I started it. And so anytime I have an opportunity to, to talk to somebody at Merck, I would like to take that.
1: So thank you for that. You. And um, um, so it's <laughs> <laughs> Not Thank be you. Better. And let's have a round of applause for our, our two panel members, Julie and Jane. Thank you so much.
0: We hope you enjoyed the discussion. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.